Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So kiss the Duchess, grab your socks, and join us on our journey through Monstrous Regiment and the complete discography. Good evening, and welcome to this confusingly 30-second book in the Discworld series, Monstrous Regiment, first published in 2003. Terry was very, very, very busy from 2000 to 2004, it seems, which, you know, more benefit to us. This book has a kind of a standalone feel, but involves a lot of characters that we've seen previously, as well as a lot of big themes that we've seen previously that are really interesting and re-approached here. With all of that out of the way, I guess we can jump quickly into our book titles. Uh, Justin, you want to lead us off? I am Justin, foreign war correspondent for the Phoebean Herald. I am General Anna, deceased. I'm Aaron, and I have an unfashionable and itchy dessert named after me. Uh, hi, I'm I'm Mark, and uh, for the purpose of this of this podcast, I'm going by Monstrous Reg. Immense. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, and uh, as you may have heard, we have a guest tonight, um, Mark Burrows. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself actually? Sure. Yes. Hello. My name's Mark Burrows. I am here in London, um, sweltering in the hottest weather that my country has literally ever had, um, which, yay, climate change. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Um, this is probably my favourite Discworld novel, so I'm really excited to be discussing it, or certainly my top five of rotating favorites. Uh, yeah, I am the author of The Magic of Terry Pratchett, which is currently the only proper biography of the great Sir Terry that you can buy. Um, unfortunately, that title is about to be stolen from me uh, as the official biography is coming out uh, in about six weeks' time, uh, which I'm very keen to read. But I'm uh, delighted to be here, delighted to discuss what I think is one of Terry's finest books, one of the most uh, written in one of the most prolific and exciting points of his career i genuinely think this is we'll talk i'm sure we'll talk about this later but i genuinely think there is a couple of years where he was in where he was in his absolute purple patch his absolute imperial phase writing the best he would ever write and i think monstrous regiment happens right in the middle of that period so very excited to be here discussing it so what was your first discworld book it was it was actually the color of magic which um hmm. like i know not everybody starts with the color of magic and i didn't choose to start with the color of magic um when i was 12 years old which was in 1992 um uh cuz i old <laughs> um, um my uh somebody like beautifully appropriately a bloke down the pub lent the color of magic and guards guards to um to my mum or my dad i can't remember which and they they instinctively knew that it was something that i would really enjoy and so i was i i was gifted them and uh like completely fell in love within a couple of pages mostly because um guards guards and the color of magic both have swear words in the first page and a half uh <laughs> which when you're 12 automatically means that this is the coolest thing you're going to read um but the, i there is way more to it than that and obviously and um and I, you know I, I made my way down to the local library in the little village in leicestershire where i grew up and um read my way through the shelf of pratchett's and then in no particular order this was 
I think there were about 12 Discworld novels out at the time, realized you mm-hmm. could order books from other libraries and pretty quickly read my way through everything that he ever wrote and then um, was, you know, first in line to buy every new book from pretty much then onwards. So um, I'm a long-term fan going back. What's your favorite non-Discworld project? Uh, I think Nation is a masterpiece. I, I honestly think it's a do um uh and I actually think the Bromeliad trilogy is just incredible. Mm-hmm. I think those books are so smart and they are they have so much kind of they have so much to say and they say it in a way that is very, very, very cleverly approached. Like they're children's books that have this world in them of um questioning faith and community and and what it means to be alive and i think though those are uh astonishing books uh, i i really really do so it's very telling he wrote those at the same time he was writing truckers around the same time he was writing small gods and i think there is a lot of crossover thematically between those um be- between those you can there, you can often see a lot of books he was writing at the same time and truckers and small gods is one of them around there uh amazing maurice and thief of time is another and you can there there's a lot of stuff about the darkness behind the eyes and the notion of what it is to be alive that crosses mm-hmm. that crosses between both of those books and uh johnny and the bomb was written around the same time as another one that the, I can't remember which one that that has a lot of simple I mean, and to the point that Bugrit Millennium Hand and Shrimp turns up in it, and the trousers of time are discussed. Like it's that say <laughs> it's so that I I really like the cross pollination. I think I I think amongst fandom the um the non Discworld projects can get overlooked, and uh, one of the things I always recommend is that people like it is as amazing and brilliant as Discworld is. I know this is a Discworld podcast. Um, like I actually think there is a lot of incredible writing to be found outside of Discworld in, in, in his oeuvre, um, mm-hmm. right up to Dodger, which I think is a great book. Like he was, it is. There, there's some excellent stuff that, um, th- that is not set on the back of a turtle, um, and is none <laughs> the worse for it. Yeah. I, I always, I always feel like I'm one of like the few people who enjoyed Dodger. Uh, I really liked it, and it's on my list to reread. No, I loved it. I think the thing with Dodgers is very. I mean, okay, we're talking about a different book now. But, um, <laughs> it's a very. Um, it's 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 a deliberately stylized book. Like it's like it references Dickens very heavily, and he borrows turns of phrase from Victoriana and from specifically from Dickens, who's a character in the book. But yeah. the in the way it's in the writing, it's there's there's a lot of little nods to to Dickens in it, and and a lot and. It, some of them slightly jar in the way that, that to a to a modern reader, but there, but it's not bad writing. It's not Terry losing his touch. It was an intentional stylistic decision. Like mm-hmm. read the first sentence of that book. It's 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 a it's like an exquisite twist on it was a dark and stormy night. It starts with pretty much that sentence, but written in a written in a really beautiful way. Um, so yeah, I think um, there's some there's some lovely stuff in that. I reread everything in, when I was writing my book. I reread the entire the entire catalog like every wow. single um uh, and uh it was really interesting to read them in order i'd never read i'd read the discworld series in order before i'd done a complete reread in order i'd read and i'd read everything like i'd like more than once but i read them in publication order like i, mm-hmm. I read every single book in publication order and i had to go to the british library to find a, um as a which you can only join if you have an academic reason to find a copy of the carpet people terry's first book mm-hmm. in its original form because the version the the edition that is 
commonly available was rewritten completely so i had oh, wow. to start at the, to start at the very beginning I, had, I i couldn't take that book out of the library i had to sit all day and read it in a and and read the 1971 edition of the carpet people uh in the british library and then then go from there and it was a it was a really interesting process because i noticed a lot of those connections uh that i would never have picked up on before especially thinking about his biography like the timeline of his life at the same time and mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see how though how the events of his life and the way he's thinking in and um and then events in the world as well impact the books which i think uh happen in a way that is less obvious than 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 people think i I mean is less there's more of it than you think there's more real world stuff Mm. and that ranges from allusions to real world wars uh which we'll talk about a lot with this i guess um but also (laughs) to things like there are references to um like things that were very very common on british television for the six months that terry was writing this book and that joke if you don't and if if you didn't get that reference like you won't even notice the right i always say the genius of terry's writing is that if you don't get it apart from like a couple of clunkers fairly early on in the in the early books if you don't get a joke you don't even notice the joke is there and there's mm-hmm. and there's the only person who gets every joke in a terry pratchett book would be terry pratchett there is no now nobody alive who will get every joke in a terry pratchett book because some of them <laughs> are references to something that was on that was you know a, a sitcom or a commercial that was on around that time um and that has a catchphrase (laughs) and that catchphrase will be woven in somewhere um like there's a there's a pun about safeway in uh the the supermarket chain in um in reaper man i don't even know if safeway exists anymore it doesn't it doesn't in the uk but it's um like you know things like that i, I it's really I, I love that sort of thing because that's that's in dickens thing as well dickens did that there's a lot of jokes in yeah. dickens and no one get, and, and in shakespeare that no one gets anymore because they were yeah. they were topical references um, yeah. and i love how these as these books age even though those jokes fade even though those jokes become they're written with such skill that you don't notice they're there and mm-hmm. um the books still work magnificently and i think that's that's part of his genius so how did you fall into was was this a, a personal mission of yours or how how did you fall into writing um a definitive biography of of Sir Terry? Uh I have an answer but it's a bit cynical. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was approached uh I someone on Twitter on Twitter uh asked uh, at 20th century mark by the way MARC. Thank you very much. Uh I, I I think I'm a worthy follow. Um but somebody was uh, looking for was commissioning for a publisher looking for someone to write a biography of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I'd always wanted to write a book. And I was like, that's on my list of things to do. And uh, I have th- I thought, I mean, I have nothing to add to the field of books about Tolkien. There are many, many books about Tolkien. You basically need a PhD in Tolkien to write about Tolkien. But I thought I could, I could write a biography of Tolkien. I like Tolkien. So I pitched it. Um, and I sent them a, 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 my take of what I thought the biography would be and some samples of my writing because I write for newspapers and um, and I have done edited kind of books before and you know I, uh, and they came back with yeah we've got this Tolkien expert to write the Tolkien book and I was like fair enough uh, uh, but is there anyone else that you would be interested in pitching a book about so um, and Terry was the first person I thought of um, and there's a couple of reasons for this partly it's because I am a massive fan like obviously I know like i know his work inside out he's my favorite author and has been for most of my life now um uh secondly no one had done it before which i could not believe no one had written a book about terry pratchett and i know that like his life is interesting uh 
His life, like he, like he left us with a beautiful three act structure of his life. Like it works brilliantly. Like you've got becoming, you've got becoming, growing up to become a writer. Uh, how, how that process happens. Where, where do you come from? You're at the middle bit. I am a famous writer now. Uh, how does that work? Well, how does my books happen? And then you've got the end of his life, which is tragic, but fascinating. Like uh, you have, I have become, I am now ill. I've got this awful disease and I'm going to become a campaigner and, a, and an advocate for it. And I'm going to write the best things I've ever written. Um, and I'm going to make my death meaningful and the end of my life meaningful. So it's a brilliant three act structure. So I couldn't believe no one had written the book. That was the second reason. So I thought that's a no brainer. I'll pitch this. And then thirdly, honestly, <laughs> like, it's a biography of somebody with a large fan base of people who are primed to buy books. <laughs> so it seemed like a really good idea. Yeah, um, it yeah seemed, that makes sense to me. It, it seemed like a really good idea. So, um, and they came back with, sure, yeah, those all sound like great reasons. Uh, basically, off you go, off you pop. Um, and because uh, I was amazed, there have been books about Terry. I wasn't the first person to write a book about Terry. Um, there's a, but I was the first. There was a couple. There's a couple of um, quite academic books. Uh, called um, uh, Terry Pratchett Guilty of Literature. Uh, there's two, which is, there's a revised volume of that that's really good. Um, there's a book called uh, Terry Pratchett and the Spirit of Fantasy, which is more of a kind of, it's got a little bit of biography in it, but nothing that you kind of didn't, couldn't find out fairly easily. And, um, but is mostly kind of a critical appraisal of his work. Um, so yeah, no one had written, and there was a very, very, very kind of knocked out biography that was basically just copying the stuff off the, off the back of the books. Um, mm-hmm. So I was the first person to actually go in in detail and and you know find apps that put find things that are, were not generally well known and construct the shape of his life and and you know, read i must have read almost every interview he ever gave um and i interviewed and actually interviewed people who hadn't really gone on the record to talk about him before and um you know it was an unofficial biography so that wasn't always that was always fairly challenging but uh i think once people when i spoke to people and people realized that i was doing it with um with enthusiasm and, and and out of genuine affection and appreciation for his work and i was doing a prop doing a proper job of it like mm-hmm. um uh people were actually really open to it and the response has been amazing i've had a like it's 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 all i would it's basically changed my life writing this that book i mean i don't make a living out of it <laughs> but um but you know once you've written a book that people liked then people are a lot more interested in in what your next idea is and um and people take an interest and um and i've been able to um appear on podcasts like this and um and it's helped me further my writing career and people have, and then that's kind of brought people back into the, my career as a musician and career in inverted commas and uh it all kind of feeds itself so that's been really nice and um it basically mean it helped me establish a kind of parallel career as a as a biographer as a writer which i've got mm-hmm. my next my next proper book is out in about is out at the end of october so um and i'm already and i'm working on the one after that and i know what the next like three after that are going to be so yeah it's uh it's been a it's been a massive journey it's been a um an adventure and it's genuinely changed my life the fa- congrats on having an actual release date uh, for a book because I, as as the child of a nonfiction author, um, I ask, oh, so how's how are the books going? And she's like, we'll say like I have five books. I don't know when any of them are coming out because there's no paper. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I like I know a pro- I know the provisional re- release date. I know the planned yeah. release date. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, when, it, when it's you know three months out, I think you're safe. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 rough. It's the officially it's out on October the thirtieth. Like I like it might like if that changes, it wouldn't like Rob's ter- Rob's biography of Terry was due to be out exactly a year ago. Um, and had been finished in time for that, uh, and got postponed. And mostly, I think, because it's an obvious Christmas seller, so you you want to release it in the in the autumn, in the fall. Um, so if you're gonna miss if you're gonna miss that window, then you have to hold it back for a year, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, so I'm pretty sure October the thirtieth for my next book. It's called The London Boys, David Bowie, Mark Bolan, and the Sixties Teenage Dream. Um, and I'm very excited about it. Well, hopefully, uh, knock on wood that your that your printers will, will have enough paper. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you were when you're researching this and create and you know working on this biography, what was something that you like learned about Terry that you just had no idea about or that you were surprised by? Um, I think we have to buy the book. <laughs> no, no, I, mean, I, I gets one, we get and we get one for the podcast. We, it's fine. You, I, I, it's no, it's a good question. Um, and actually, the thing that surprised me most is that Terry Pratchett is a liar, <laughs> and <laughs> that um, and that became a theme all the way through the book. <laughs> of these, co- there are common stories that he told a lot, and uh, what I found out fairly quickly is that a lot of them weren't true. And like the the most the one of the most famous ones that he often talked about when he talked about his journalism career was that on his first day as a journalist he saw a body that he was t- on his first day working for a local paper as a seventeen year old he was taken to the re- to the scene of a murder to report and saw a body a viscerally dead body and he describes it in incredible detail of this this not the the body but the experience of seeing it and this image crops up in books it's in i think it's very it's most obviously in um only you can save mankind but it's in other places but he talks about um a homeless man had had fallen into a latrine or a ditch or a sewer or something like that and had drowned and you know he famously said that he learned uh how much somebody could throw up on the fir- on, on their first day and how many colors the human body could turn so i was like okay i'm going to find this story um, so the British Library is an amazing resource and basically has a copy of every newspaper ever printed in the UK. So I had access to, and I li- I'm lucky enough to live in London. I live close by. So I spent about a week in the British Library going through um, copies of the Bucks Free Press, for um, which is Terry's, the newspaper he wrote for at the time. Uh, and I started before I knew that he started, in case the dates were wrong. And I went to the end of the year and I found no trace of that story. Nothing. Like there is no, there was not a single story that matched that, that matched the, the facts of that. Now, that does that mean that that didn't happen? For a start, like maybe it was decided that it was out of the jurisdiction of the paper. Maybe it wasn't printed for some reason. Maybe he misremembered the details. Um, but I went through coroner's reports. I went through like um, articles and everything, and there was no trace of this. My think, my personal theory is that it did happen. But it happened like a year later. Like I, I can't, I couldn't read, read every single, like every single issue of the of, of the newspaper. I would because his articles aren't bylined for most of them. Like, the, like mm. there's no, they're mostly like you know most of the news articles in that in that newspaper are fifty words about the local football team, about a parish, about a parish council meeting, about you know something that something they 
like local government has said or an opening of a shop. Like they're not bylined. They don't say Terence Pratchett wrote this until much later when he gets his own column. And even then, it's rarely under his own name. Um, so I, the, the, it was too big a job to read every single issue of that newspaper. So I would have had to, I might eventually have found that story. But my theory is that it happened a couple of years later, maybe a couple of month, months later. Um, and that it was real and that he's definitely he must have seen that body because his description of it is so vivid and the emotional reaction to having seen it crops up in his books there's a few times where a body is seen that he talks about it i don't think it happened on his first day i think it happening on his first day is just a really good story and mm-hmm. um what and he was a storyteller he was one of the greatest storytellers um and he didn't just apply that to his work he applied that to his life he he you know, was far more interested in in sculpting a good story. I mean, he prepared prepare for interviews. Like he, when he go off on a press tour, though, he would pre prepare really great quote quotable sentences that he would drop into almost every interview to make sure that they, knowing that they'd be pulled out because he was a journalist. He knew how the, how the game worked. Um, you know, he knew how to he knew how to spin it. And um, there's several famous Pratchettian stories how he got published for the first time um his advice to young writers and um and, and a couple more that um that basically didn't happen <laughs> and he's just massaged them not massively not like there's a grain of truth always and the sort of emotional truth is always there but um he would often find he would often switch the facts around to make the story more palatable and who can blame him it makes life more interesting I suppose we should talk about the book at some point. Theoretically, yeah. this has been this has All been right. fascinating, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to pick up your. I need to pick up your book. Same. Uh, add it to the the related works section of my of my uh, Terry shelf. Uh, please, <laughs> please do. Please let me know what you think of it. Um, yeah. I'll be very interested if you uh, interested when you read the official biography as well. To, like I I I I write I wrote it knowing that was coming. So uh, knowing that that would have access that I would never have. I was never going to get to interview Terry's wife. I was never going to get to interview Terry's daughter or some of his closest friends because they were all, you know, locked in to do the official book. And why would they? Who am I? Um, so I mm-hmm. kind of pitched in a different way that um, that would hopefully sit alongside rather than compete with the official book, which I have been told does. I haven't read it, um, but... Um, some people like, but the inside scoop from the Pratchett estate is that actually it does work like that. And that's why they were kind of, when they read it, they were, they were pretty happy with my book because it didn't make any spurious claims. <laughs> um, it had, it, and it didn't clash with the one, uh, it didn't clash or contradict the one that Robert written. So that's, uh-huh. it complemented it, which is nice. I like to think of my book as the footnotes to the, the official book. Footnotes are important. Vitally important. and footnotes are sometimes where some of the best jokes are too that's true have we gotten to have we gotten to any of the books that have like the multi-page footnotes depends on the edition you have we've been sort of i think we've been sort of we've been hitting a little bit of a barren stretch when it comes to footnotes there are a couple good ones in this one yeah i mean but it's like we don't have any of like the the huge juicy ones that relatively would appear in like where he drops like a giant world building thing. Yeah, like I think like the la- like the last truly huge one I remember is the the space invader the the space invaders. Oh yeah, is <laughs> brilliant. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Monstrous Regiment. Uh, I will start with the summary. Um, 
I will say, however, this book more than any other book in this entire series, if you are for some reason listening to this podcast and you haven't read the book, stop right now. Go read the book. I'll wait. Okay, good. In the small, belligerent, religious fundamentalist nation of Borgravia, war has arrived, or rather, war never really took more than a long weekend or two out for the last hundred years. Uh, locked in a bloody stalemate with those Lobinian neighbors, the butcher's bill is mounting and the field of new recruits is thinning. Additionally, the list of abominations of Nuggan are getting weird. These things include garlic, cats, the smell of beets, people with ginger hair, shirts with six buttons, anyone shorter than three feet, namely dwarves, children, and babies, sneezing, jigsaw puzzles, chocolate, which was once Borgravia's staple export, plunging the country into increasing poverty, crop rotation, which has also destroyed Borgravia's food supplies, and the color blue. Which is why, when Polly Perks cuts off her hair and swaggers up to the recruiting table, manned by Sergeant Jackram and Corporal Strappy as the, haha, 17-year-old Oliver Perks... No man bats an eye. Polly's brother, it seems, left to the front a year ago and has not been heard from, so the obvious course of action is for Polly to join up and try to find him. Other characters volunteer for the 10th Light Infantry, the old ins and outs, the cheesemongers. These include, in no particular order, an Igor, a troll named Carborundum, a vampire whose short name is Maledict, Tonker Halter, Shefty Manacle, Wazer Goom, and Lofty Toot. The first night, Polly is confronted by a mysterious voice in the outhouse who guides her toward, what's the appropriate word here, enhancing her male appearance with a carefully positioned pair of socks under the waistband. The person knows she is a girl, but seems uninterested in exposing her secret. Over the next few days, Polly gradually realizes that more and more of her human compatriots are actually women with similar goals to hers. Lofty, it appears, followed her man into the army. She and Tonker are rarely apart. And Shufty is pregnant and seeking her Johnny. And no, Tonker's a girl too. First uh, woman-loving woman relationship in Discworld. Uh, they also start to get the sense that Bargravia's position is extremely tenuous, passing walking wounded with increasing frequency. They meet up with a Rupert, a wet-behind-the-ears Lieutenant Blouse, who is as well-versed in General Tacticus as he is utterly useless with a sword. Oh, and unbeknownst to him, his stallion is actually a mare. The platoon is betrayed and robbed by Strappy, who it turns out is a political officer, attempting to root out traitors, who takes Polly's hair, several other personal items, and, worst of all, Maledict's coffee, critical to maintaining his black ribboner status. And then a flying wing of Zlobinian heavy dragoons ambush them, but are thwarted by a combination of the boys dressing up as women and judicious application of Maledict and Carbrundum. And then reporters from Mike Morpork show up. The platoon disappears into the countryside in an attempt to reach the front unimpeded, eventually discovering that Igor is an Igorina and Carborundum is in fact Jade. Wazer is displaying some sort of divine connection, and little miracles keep occurring here and there. Useless in a fight, Lieutenant Blouse nevertheless displays tactical genius, inventing information warfare out of thin air. Eventually they reach the front, only to find the Borgravian army pinned down by the Lubinian control of a massive fort. The plan to sneak into the fort disguised as simple washerwoman eventually is taken up by Blouse, who insists that only he has the theatrical chops to pull it off. When he doesn't return, they assume that he's been held captive and follow him via the same ruse. But because of narrativium, it appears that only Blouse's disguise was convincing enough to fool the Zlobinians. Anyway, they progress through the fort, discovering restless dead along the way, but are taken prisoner by combined Zlobinian and Ike Morpork forces. Hi, Vimes! Confined to a disused kitchen, Lofty improvises a fuel air bomb, and the platoon effects a rescue of the captive Borogravians, who immediately imprison them again in advance of a trial slash court-martial, because they're women. And we learn that the last remaining Swati is, in fact, Maledicta. 
At the trial, Waza reveals that she has been possessed by the spirit of the Duchess, the dead leader who has temporarily taken on deity duties while Nuggin descends into madness and obsolescence, but would very much like to stop now, thank you. And then Jackram reveals that a significant portion of the signature Bargravian leadership are women who have been living as men for decades in contravention of Bargravian and Nugganite law. There's a coda to Jackram's story that... Go read the book. Some cleanup happens, Vime suppresses chuckles, and a tentative peace is reached. Polly returns home with her brother, and other plot lines are similarly resolved to satisfaction. And then the drumbeat of war starts up again, and Polly puts her uniform back on, this time as herself. I skipped over a lot, but there's a lot in this book. <laughs> I noticed yeah. you, you deliberately swerved a spoiler there, right? Um, which, which can, um, and it's, I totally get why you did it, but are we collectively going to swerve that spoiler, or are we going to discuss that spoiler? Well, oh, because... it's completely, this, is a, this is a spoilery podcast. Yes, good. I'm just shaming the people who haven't listened to the uh, okay, good. <laughs> who haven't read the book because it's like one of the most pivotal moments I think in gender politics in in this world. Mm, I agree. I, it's yeah, I think it's an extremely. I think it's. I think it's one of the. I think Jackram is is one of Pratchett's greatest creations. I think Jackram mm. is an incredible character, one of the best, richest, and most interesting characters in any of the books, and a character yeah. that that he simply could not have written. Um, five years, ten years earlier than this, he they, they, yeah. he he gets to the point that like Pratchett becomes a better writer as he goes along. Those the early books are brilliant, but he becomes a much better writer. Like um, he becomes richer. He he becomes better at different types of characters. There are certain types of characters mm-hmm. in the early books that he can't really write. Like young women, he's not great at <laughs> like he's not great at young women. Uh, particularly and then we get Tiffany Aching. Exactly. Well, that's exactly yeah. my point. If you look at if you look at Bethany, Kanina, and Tracy in um and uh, like they're the same character. Like they they they're not interesting characters. And then late, but then suddenly you've got Angua, and then you've got later you've got Tiffany. You know he he does learn how he gets really good. Sybil is an and a, Sybil, a, incredible. Sybil gets better. Like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's I think that's all Terry's. Um, evolution as a writer, and I think, but I think I don't think he could have written Sergeant Jackram um, in the mid nineties. I don't think he, yeah. he I, I don't think he he sharpened himself to that point. I think Jackram is a, is a really funny creation, but a really interesting creation, and um, that says a lot. And it does, and it's a fan, just a, a really brilliant creation i'm yeah once rereading it i was just really i'm always impressed by how vivid that character is once i got to the end of the book last night the only thing i could think like the thing i I sort of kind of like wanted to piece it with was cheery actually Hmm. (laughs) because like whereas you know cheery is a character who comes in you have and you have her journey in the book Instead, you have Jackram, like, you know, who you find out what his deal is at the end of the book, but you can then retroactively apply it to so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I know we, we're probably going to get into this later, but Jack, like, Jackram is a trans man. Like, like yeah. not every character in this book is a trans is a, is a trans character or or a mm-hmm. queer character. I'm not sure Polly is a, is is either a trans or queer character. Um, de- depending on no, your she, de- she's a, she's a Shakespearean crossdresser. As yeah, well. yeah. Is- her her, her crossdressing is out of necessity, not, not necessity than in, rather than inclination. But Jackram mm-hmm. is a Jackram is absolutely a trans man, and that's yeah. um re- and I. Uh, and that's important because um, it's the first time anything like that 
um, is, is dealt with like that. Cherry is a brilliantly realized character, but we watch Cherry's journey from the beginning, and we know we see we see from inside Cherry's point of view. Whereas um, Jackram, we you know, is is someone we find out about, it, and there's that you they are essentially somebody living their truth, uh, yeah. and that is you know that's it's really delicately done. As I said, in a way that I don't think many writers could do, and that I don't think even even Terry could have done ten years earlier. And that that exchange between Polly and Jackram is so great when, um, you know, they're talking about Jackram's past, um, and finding out that he has a son out there, and you know, Polly's encouraging him to you know, go and explore that in his retirement. Jackram is of the mind that like that would mean that he has to go back to go back to living as a woman and Polly's like no you don't you don't have to and the, I love that exchange it links to back to something that that Maledict says uh, early in the book which is something like uh, I would never uh, look at me I'm a I'm a I'm 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 a vampire like, pretending not to be a vampire. I'm never going to judge anybody for for not playing the cards they were dealt or something yeah. along those lines. Uh, um, and it's you know that like he states his case right there. That's right. It's very much there. You you live how you want to live. That's staked exactly like it's it couldn't be clearer. Uh, and yeah, that that bears fruit right at the end. Yeah the the way that the gender reveals go through comedy and into deep emotional truth just by sheer repetition mm. yeah. is so fascinating to me because you you get to, you get to the the reveal that the stallion's a mare and you're like ha 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 and then you get to jackram and you're like oh this hurts my soul a little bit <laughs> in a good way something that i think like really that that works for this book especially because i mean aaron you you use what is, what's it called when a joke gets repeated so often it, it goes from expected to unexpected um but i think like the especially with the differences of how different characters treat that trope it really makes an interesting spectrum from that there are trans characters like jackram to also looking at the idea of for lack of a better word drag gender as performance mm -hmm. which if you like if like if we if we like you know if, in, in the first quarter of this podcast if you told me like there was this book that was like okay we're gonna be talking about gender as performance at book 32 i'm gonna be like oh but <laughs> i mean it's wonderful it, it's the idea of that the the squad can't sneak in as washerwomen because they are because they've because they've been playing at men too long um and then it's utterly failing un and until they've got one of them's got to expose themselves it's very funny it's just like it's like oh no we've been doing this too long and, yeah and also only for five days yeah, yeah. at that point or something <laughs> the, but the idea that 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 the gender performance becomes more um becomes like a it, it is more real than that like it is because it's a, it's a it becomes more valid than than kind of for want of a better word gender reality is really like it's a it's a beautiful observation um and i re I, I really really like it yeah i'm genuinely yeah. interested um justin because you you read this just read this the first time yes. right so did you 
at what point did you realize that every single one of the company was going to was going to be a woman um when when car carbon was jade i was like okay we're doing that okay now it's everybody's gotta be there yeah because there's um did you see jackram coming though because I, I remember when I first time I read it, I didn't. So I think it's I think when there there was a time of like what what it was was when he's talking to Lieutenant Bless and like he says these are my little lads. I was like, okay, obviously Jackram sees through all of it, and were I a betting man, I wouldn't put my next paycheck on it, but. I would definitely... By your life, you are not a betting man. I, I, you know, it's like, I wouldn't put my next paycheck on it, but I put 50 bucks on it. <laughs> uh, just give me the odds there. And, uh, you could argue, and I, I've seen that people argue, that the, there is a, the, the title of the book is a spoiler. The um, you know, it, the, it reference to that the old quote of the monstrous <laughs> regiment of women. Um, like it's and it's it's such a classic. Pratchett, like put a, put a big honking pun that you might not even notice as a pun in the title, um, mm-hmm. and uh, like. But I always think that that's not a spoiler because because not because the the, the amount of people who'd recognise that quote is so compared to the amount of people who would read a Terry Pratchett book is so like is oh, so yeah. tiny uh, that it's not really the only. It's a, it's more of a nod and a wink to those that get it than anything else. As as a relative history buff, I didn't get that reference until Aaron posted posted it in our chat last night. Like posted posted a oh. link to the to that to what that article was referencing, and I was like, "Oh, so yeah, yeah like I didn't I didn't catch it." Um, and but yeah, it's it's a fun little thing, and but yeah, that's such a Terry thing of just like I'm gonna put this joke that's like three layers deep, and if you get it. You're gonna have like you. You know what's coming. <laughs> I was I was always surprised that we didn't get get a reveal about Strappy. I Interesting, think, yeah. Well, Strappy's just but, an asshole. Yeah, I think, I think, but I think that that would have actually dovetailed reasonably well with the idea that like one of the ongoing themes is that like women can be assholes too. Fair, but we've already got General Frock as true. An asshole. True. The one I the one I re- <laughs> I really enjoy though is that um is the. <laughs> It's Lieutenant Blouse is a cis man, but has a but ha, but is named after a after a um, yeah. item of women's clothing. <laughs> that, <that's, laughs> it's it's such a gay thing to do, honestly. Like like it's a gay farce joke. That's mm-hmm. what it is. It's Justin. You were you know, talking about how the how Terry's writing evolved over the years, etc. Um, yeah. You know, back when we started all of these, there's some point at which you were like. Are we ever going to get a queer character? Some of those books in their early representations of certain things are pretty dire. Um, mm. Like there, there are fun books there, but there are some. There are some points I will especially say during the Rincewind books where there are some jokes that I'm just like that. You're like when you when you're reading those for the first time in 2021 can feel very. Eh, I don't love that. Yeah, and that, uh, and I it's. I hate making this as an excuse because I don't think it no, is a very good excuse, actually. Which is that they're of their time. Yeah, but, they are. But like by book ten, that book that that feeling, or like it's like book ten or twelve or so. By like by like Reaper Man, that feeling's gone because 
there are very few authors who I can, who you can see uh, part of that because no author has the, like very few authors have that volume consistent publishing, but the, the, the progression is so visible color of magic and light. Fantastic. Going to something like Lords and ladies, which, you know, it's just, it's, the by by the like books ten through fourteen, it's light years ahead, um, and it, it feels just so different. And then the, the the I think the jump from something like Lords and Ladies and Reaperman, um, which are all roughly within a few years of each other, to this run of mm-hmm. of Carpe Jugulum, Thief of Time, Ta- um, uh, the Fifth Elephant, Thief of Time, Night Watch, um, Thud. Mm-hmm. Monstrous Regiment. I'm not sure. Um, Amazing Maurice. I'm not sure if those that that's the right order. But you know that run yeah. of books, I think is 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 his best run of books, and they are um, not that they are not that they necessarily decline uh, after this. After kind of well, within a, f- a couple of years of this, they don't they don't become in any way bad. But they, I think there is a there is a kind of an elevation at this point that I find that, that I that I think is I think he's untouchable in this run. The thing that I think that really comes out is he's finally comfortable to let some of his anger all the way through. Mm. You know, I can't remember the word that that Pat taught us last time, uh, but it was this like some German word for anger at the way the world is. You know, from that that famous article that Neil wrote a few years ago to all of the contemporaneous stuff, it, it does seem like he was angry, but he used it like a he used it like a sword to carve the sky. And it, it it starts you really start seeing it around small gods, I think. Um I mean it's 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 also in the witches' books. I think particularly in um you felt you, you see it a little bit in Weird Sisters, but especially in Witches Abroad. You see it a little bit in um Guards Guards, but especially in Men at Arms. Um like that kind of I, I always divide the Discord novels into kind of People divide them into like, oh, it's the witches series, the wizards series. I I more think of it as you got the early Discworld, which kind of goes up to guards, guards for me, and then you have mid period Discworld, which is kind of he set set up his world and now he's exploring it, which is yeah. which I think goes from kind of moving pictures and Eric to through to, um, I think I think Fifth Elephant Carpe Jugulum around them, and then you have this mm-hmm. kind of farewell tour that he does with with a bunch of characters who then. Not exactly retired, but stop headlining books after that. Rincewind in the Last Continent, um, Carrot in the Fifth Elephant, um, the witches as the the original trio as main characters in Carpe Jugulum, um, Death in, and Susan in Thief of Time. Uh, they, it's essentially it's a it's a fair it's it's a farewell tour, and then he turns a page, and you get into the next yeah. phase of Discworld, and that I think, which is the angrier, more still frothy and brilliant and and still has lightness even in, even in monstrous regiment which i think is as dark as discord ever gets as there's still lightness there's still joy in it but um it's so much sharper so much better satire and so much better and kind of his skills all come together like the characters are much but more fully realized um like not just one token woman but many women <laughs> <laughs> and um and many women with layers of gender complexity to them not just one character with a with with gender with who has a complex relationship with their gender and mm-hmm. yeah that becomes really that uh, and i think you can see that through this 
from the from pretty much from the truth onwards i think you can see that in the, in this run and that anger um is like it's a blowtorch it really is and i think in this one because do you know you know this was wasn't i don't know if you know this but this nearly wasn't a discord novel when he conceived it he, Interesting. he conceived it he he was he considered writing it as a standalone um and mm. setting it during the napoleonic wars fascinating um, and eventually he was kind of decided, basically decided, I think possibly just for sound commercial reasons, decided because the Discworld yeah, novels yeah. sold better. But also I think he felt he could have a little bit more freedom by sending it on Discworld because, um, it, you know, he, the, he already knew the rules. Um, there are certain, you could, you could bring Vimes in, uh, who I think has an interesting role in this book. Um, you, it continues a theme about communication and about, um, the evolution, the impact of technology on, yeah. society that so it kind of enriches Discworld mm-hmm. and then the book itself which n- n- you could take this plot and you could because it is but it's based on a series of real world incidents anyway this did happen mm. um he his public his editor at the time wasn't convinced that it she thought it wasn't likely that you know, people would go this isn't realistic you couldn't join the army and and pretend you were a boy and get away with it. So he went and so Terry went and proved her wrong. When and he said he spent um, two weeks in researching in lesbian bookshops, um, finding. <laughs> very, um, but he found all of these examples, um, uh, all of these examples from European wars where exactly this had happened, and where there were actually and during the and uh, during the the American Civil War as well. There is it's it's very well documented that there were there were many many women who were fought fighting as men in the american civil war uh and so he managed to, to go to very much previous case um and yeah that's so it's really interesting that this could have been um and it probably would have been grittier i think if it was set in the real world yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it's funny though it's it's one of those examples of terry doing a throwaway line in an earlier book uh, in an earlier mm. book and then writing an entire book around it because mm. there's a sentence at the beginning of, I think, Nightwatch, where Vimes comments on the situation in Borogravia heating mm. up again. I think there's even a reference to it, Carpe Jugulum. Um, Could be. When... Um, oh, Nuggin or something? Uh, Nuggin, pro- Nuggin crops up in Last Hero, I think. That's true. Uh, yeah. uh, but there's a bit where King Varenz is talking about um, is is talking about uh, Lanka needing to be needing to recognise its place on the global stage. And I think he even I think he says he talks about the Borogravia problem. Um, Wild. And it's uh, it, and if you if you look back at um, the way a lot of wars and things were, were were reported in the 19th century, it's really like the way these things were talked about. Um, uh, particularly the way European wars were talked about in british newspapers like this is like it's all very spot on it's very very well observed Uh, Mm. but yeah he's like i don't necessarily think this means he was planning this book um so much like he knew that he was going to write about that conflict i think it was more that just it's almost it's very likely that he just that was dashed out and then he went back and went oh actually this could actually that's i i've i've already set up a war i've i've created a war already i've I, i'm looking for i write a book about war and here i am two books earlier i've mentioned a war so I'll, that's because the, the 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 again a theme of the later books is uberwald um which uh um is basically the bit of the map that that had no detail in it um and the and that it's 
the dealing with the after effects of the breakup of the Soviet Union, Ubervold is Ubervold is essentially Eastern Europe. So mm-hmm. um, it's really interesting to see those the, those, and he even talks about that later um, about the breakup of the evil empire that mm-hmm. w- once ruled Ubervold. It's really is really subtle. It's not often referenced often, but it is there. Um, that the Ubervold was once an evil empire ruled by a dark lord, um, and it's a set, but it's essentially in the same way that Ankh-Morpork is, is essentially becomes, um, amongst other things, a cipher for Victorian London. Ubervold mm-hmm. becomes a cipher for almost for both nineteenth-century and twentieth-century Central and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder also. So, for context, I studied at Edinburgh uh, in two thousand two, two thousand three. Uh, where the, you know, when this book was probably getting polished and the drumbeat towards the second mm. invasion of Iraq yes. felt like it felt like it was all over the place and it felt like it was this inevitable thing that was, you know, happening in every piece of media. And I, I'm, I'm curious if that, you know, that must have been a piece of of the genome in this book i absolutely think it was i don't know if you've read only you can save mankind which was uh which is one of the non-discord novels one of the johnny maxwell novels but that deals with the first gulf war and mm-hmm. um it's about uh video games and it's about how um the what how uh video games look like war and war looks like video games um which i think has become even more even even though that book actually the because it's about set in the real world and it's set around around gaming technology which has changed a lot since 1992 um mm-hmm. it's actually it's the, the the sort of that core theme is really pertinent but um yeah i think i think i i was going to bring this up i think iraq is a bit is definitely in the back of his mind um yeah. and that whole stuff about lies there's a great line. Um, I can't remember who says it. There's a one, but somebody wants. I think I think Polly says it. Um, that they all they ever do is lie to us. Um, mm-hmm. And talking about and it's about this idea that that the state, the authorities, tell a lie and it becomes true. Um, mm-hmm. Which is so absolute. Like this could have been written for this year. In terms I, of. I mean- War, gender politics, and a and religious fundamentalism gone absolutely moldy. A culture, like, a culture that turns rote practices, denies introspection with them, and turns those into harming infrastructures. I, I don't even, <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> but it's astonishing, isn't it? I, I, I think this one more than any any. I think that that line of the you know the the the. The, that idea that that power controls people and that um, and that powerful people lie to control people, I think that's embedded through many of the Discord books. Um, and that war war is an act of control of a population and things like that. You know, that's in Jingo. Well, I think comparing this with Jingo is really interesting because it's a much more sophisticated look at it. Uh, it's it's a much more feet on the ground look at war. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Apart- the costs yeah. of war, but how relevant these all of those themes are to to the world we live in now. That's like mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't know if that's genius or just depressing, but it's um it's or, or a little of it. I don't know if it's the if that's prescience or um or the fact that nothing ever changes. I don't know, but it's but it is it doesn't show how valid these books are. I think this this is one of the ones that that is going to continue to age and will continue to be powerful um mm-hmm. and like i i can't enthuse about much just regiment enough that's <laughs> yeah. why i was excited to do this to do this episode yeah the 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 whole thing with with you know the death of a god 
mm-hmm. is so fascinating, especially sort of drawing a, a direct line from small gods to this one, mm-hmm. uh, with a brief stopover in the last hero where we saw Nuggan, as you pointed out. In small gods, at least his his gods sort of fade and become voices in this desert, uh, whereas Nuggan is dead, right? Or is insane, or at least is, or at least is so faint that it's just a a hissing, pointless existence. Yeah, because the abominations still come. It's just that they, you know, I. But the, but how much of that is based on the fear of Nuggan versus there being it's being created reciprocally through mm-hmm. uh, the Burgravian people. But the, the fascinating idea is that there that there that Nuggan has been replaced by the Duchess. And that mm-hmm. idea that of believe that believing in a person um and worshipping a person deifies that person. That goes back to pyramids. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. like that's that's an idea that was already established then. And the idea that you believe in you believe in your king and your king becomes a god is that um is like that like Terry had already set that up. But that's like building that tapestry of the power of belief and the power of narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh it like that's a theme that runs through the entire series. But I really like the fact that he picks that up and he makes takes the same idea but he makes it darker um and and then blends it with this idea of Queen Victoria which is like really <laughs> clever like the little mother the the what the 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 austere old lady in permanent mourning like i find mm-hmm. that I, I love that speaking of of cultural references polly oliver is in fact uh entirely taken from a uh an english ballad mm-hmm. yeah one of which i was not aware by the way um, like not at least not 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 until I looked it up, not until I read this book. Like this is Terry's knowledge of of everything. Yeah. Like he knew yeah. he, he his his knowledge of obscure and the the obscure and the minutiae is completely unbelievable. Um, yeah. So this is not this and- I. This is not a commonly just a, just a state from the British point of perspective. This is not a commonly known folk song to a modern audience. Yeah, uh, and several of the other. Um- some of the other songs are references to actual folk songs and the stories of several of the, uh, uh, of the, the platoon are either directly or indirectly taken from, from other folk songs. Uh, yeah, the, the, the depth and breadth of, of Sir Terry's just sort of random deep knowledge is, it just impresses me every single time. And he was a folk, th- folk music fan as well. That's the, like, he was never a huge, mu- uh, like, he wasn't a big music fan in terms of, like, ner- being a music nerd, you know, but, um, he liked what he liked, but he liked folk music. I mean, his favorite band was, fa- famous, ba- favorite band famously was Steel Ice Span, who were, 60s English 60s and 70s English folk band so you know he would have kind of he was a he was a beardy you know he was a cider drinking beardy <laughs> living in the southeast of England folk music is kind of wo- is kind of woven into um the southwest sorry of England the folk music is kind of woven into the southwest it's like the that kind of like the you know the Glastonbury festival is based there just down the road from where Terry lived for most for a mm-hmm. lot of his life um so you know this is it doesn't surprise me that he knew a lot of this st- sort of stuff mostly also because he liked collecting old old stories so it would have come but yeah I, I I like that this links into his love of folk music um and i and also i like how he writes about folk music because it, like it's almost in the same way that he writes about morris dancing <laughs> i was about to bring that up actually yeah and we're, we haven't hit wintersmith yet but mm, that's fun 
Morris, I mean, I mean, Lords and Ladies has an amazing Morris dancing yeah. section. Yeah. <laughs> Weaponized Morris dancing, no less. <laughs> I saw some Morris dancing live and in person a couple of days ago. Like it, it still happens. Nobody is quite safe in the streets of London. Somebody, but like, like the, a, a Morris troop bust out into a Morris whilst I was sat in a pub, and I and I politely pretended it wasn't there because <laughs> I find Morris dancing strange and I grew up in rural England so I know what I'm talking about <laughs> but. well one of the one of the things that I wanted to cover as kind of like something fairly broad is that this book really doesn't shy away from the horrors of war and in particular the horrors of war in a world that does not have antibiotics at the point where we start the book, it seems like practically an entire generation of young men are just dead. There's that. There's that line that um, that uh, there's that line that Jackram um, uh, had got, had been on had been sent out on the drum for a year, um, and mm. after he'd uh, refused to let the sawbones near his leg and had. Uh, cleaned the wound himself with maggots and honey sewed it up and spent it and and then spent a week um and then spent a week fighting a fever like that kind of thing or the 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 thing that i thought was also like very visceral was the when they meet the the um group of wounded soldiers and there's the the person who keeps his uh jacket closed tight (laughs) to hide whatever horror is underneath (sighs) Uh, I mean, we, we talked early on in the series that Terry's action scenes tend to be very well written uh, in sort of a almost spare way. And that I feel like you get the you get the shape of everything that's happening as opposed to, you know, describing each individual punch. So, like, I'm thinking about the set piece in Men at Arms when when Carrot, you know, does the the bodyguard thing with veterinary and then several of the several of the fight scenes in, in this as well you know it they mm-hmm. flow in a way that just feels like he shifts into an entirely different gear and it's interesting because he's not by and large known as a, an action writer uh-huh. like he's not by and large known as a romance writer a lot of the a lot of the sex and violence tends to happen off screen off screen uh-huh. in these books but yeah uh-huh. i think it, it's confronted here and and it does you're right it 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 strips down to this kind of quite matter of fact it's a kind of elegantly blunt i would describe it as um although there are there are um bits where i think it, it where where his his imagination does actually start to play like the um like the whole section with um so when Ma- yeah when Mal- when maledict's descent down the <laughs> down the river to the heart of darkness that uh, is <laughs> one of my favorite like, subplots oh yeah it's so good it's so good um, and, <laughs> and explaining how black ribboning works too in yeah. part of that you know shifting shifting the the desire you know and the addiction from one thing to another and how Terry positions vampirism as, as an addiction that people struggle with mm. is, you know, probably the, the kindest treatment to vampires. Yeah, yeah. it is. Well, that, that, um, <laughs> but it is, it really is. And, and I, I really love that scene as well, or that series of scenes um, that's up there with, for me, with uh, the kind of alternate universe where 
Rincewind is on a plane. <laughs> is it nuclear physicist Rincewind? Yeah. I think I think honestly my fa- like the part I laughed hardest with the book is when the the bag of coffee lands <laughs> in his mouth and he just it's like we can't remove it from we can't remove it from his mouth. He just keeps sucking. Just <laughs> on the I'm bag like, of beans. I'm like I've I know all these I I know so many of this person. Yeah. Hello. What's really <laughs> what I really love about uh, what I really love about that is that um is that it like so many things in Discworld it starts off a th- as a throwaway joke f- a few books mm-hmm. back the idea of black ribboners it starts off as a throwaway joke of uh, just like you know there are vampires who are trying not to be, who are who are trying to live amongst uh, being able to live amongst humans without uh, not not von drop and all of that but it's kind of a throw it's it's kind of a throwaway joke it's not really like something that's taken seriously and then you get to this point where actually it becomes okay what does this really mean mm-hmm. <laughs> what does this mean for somebody what and um let's actually take this idea and start to explore it because he, he doesn't i mean on we were talking about gender but he does the same thing with dwarves and the idea of gender among dwarves because that whole thing about dwar- dwarf men and women looking the same is a throwaway joke at the expense of lord of the rings mm-hmm. like it's ju- all, mm-hmm. all it is is look is is Tolkien wrote it, wrote one line in Lord of the Rings and Pratchett wrote a punchline to it. And and then a few books later he goes, "Hang on, what does that actually mean?" Like I've now established that this is a thing, but what does it mean? What does that actually when we like the because the whole point of these books is to treat these pe- is to treat these fantasy tropes as real people. So I've now decided that dwarves are that I I I have I have decided that dwar- the male and female dwarves present gender identically. What does that mean if you're living in that society? And what does that mean if you decide to go, actually, that is not me? And that's mm-hmm. really, really interesting. Yeah. And, um, and suddenly you get the character of Cheery, um, who, you know, which can be read as a trans journey. I think I, I absolutely read Cheery as a trans journey. Other people, I think, haven't, but those people are, are wrong. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, uh, and I think this is the, the black ribbon thing. And this is the same. It's like, it's like, actually, this is so. This isn't just a throwaway joke of vampires trying not to be vamp, trying not to drink blood, which is kind of dealt in Carpe Jugulum is kind of dealt as a funny as a joke, and it's haha, brilliant. Okay, it's a vampire thing, um, but now it's kind of like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Actually, these are real. I, the, again, in this series, fantastic fantasy, fantasy characters are real mm-hmm. people. Yeah, vampires are real people. This is a person. There's a person with an addiction. Um, how does that work? How does that manifest itself? How is he going to, how does that feel? Um, and then you just throw, and then you just throw in Vietnam movies. Nice. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's amazing. And trying to make coffee out of acorns and things like that. Yes. It's so, it's, it's so, so good. And yeah, it just dropping out of the sky. I love and, that. And the idea of somebody with a, such a, a massive psychic presence having hallucinations that, you know, other people experience just because of their, mm. their sheer, you know, the weight of their, of their psychic presence. I love it. Yeah. And again, that's, that's, that's that makes this a Discord yeah. novel. Like you couldn't, like there are bits in this that would, if you did, it, like you could still have written as a you, the magical realism, although Terry hated that phrase. Um, aspects could still have worked in a real world setting. Like most of his real world books uh, have um, like fantasy elements to them. Every single book he ever wrote had a fantasy element to it. But um, but that's specifically Discworld element. That's that's the world he's created, and uh, that's the joy of it. And I think that's why I'm glad this is a Discworld novel, even though I think occasionally it almost it almost rubs up uncomfortably about the t- of the two tones 
existing together, but it never quite goes wrong. And and then you get to and moments like that make it worth worthwhile that it's a Discworld novel. Should we talk about socks? <laughs> I love I love the idea of the socks. Uh, again, it's gender. Again, representation like uh, a representation of gender of gender performance. Yeah, and it's it, it's, it's stupid. It's like it's a stupid but, joke, uh, but it's also but it's not stupid. Pro profound, yeah. exactly. Oh, yeah. You know the the quote that I pulled. I think it's the socks. It's like that they pull you forward all the time. It's like the whole world spins around your socks. You know, at, at the at surface level, it's funny, but then you think about it for more than two seconds, and you're like, ah. Oh. It's like yeah, there's a lot of uh, lots. It might just be the socks talking yeah. kind mm-hmm. of yeah. thing, but just. But it's on the one hand, it's just dick jokes. But on the other hand, it's actually talking about the power of masculinity mm-hmm. and what they and, and and the power of patriarchy and like and Polly running running out of socks, you know, yeah. as she covers for more and more people. Occasionally, just I keep doing this with this book, but I just keep having to take moments of just going. I've just of just being like completely blown away by how intricately put together yeah. all of this it's is. So it's so tight. There's not one wasted space. And then you have alongside all that intricacy, you have hilarious jokes. Like the the time that Polly, I forget who she's talking to, but she's talking to somebody, and the socks start to slip down her leg. Yeah. <laughs> Or, it's blouse. Yeah. It's she's yeah. talking to blouse. It's just, it's just after they meet blouse for the first time, and she and apparently, and he, there's a line where he says he gives her a look, <laughs> where he, he gives her gives her leg a look, and she pretends to have cramp. Yeah. Or, or the scene with the, the maid that's coming on to Polly. I'm sure there's things round heels. Molly. I'm sure there's things you'd like to learn. The maid purred. I'm sure there's something you wouldn't, said <laughs> Polly. Also, Round Heels Molly is a brilliant name for a band. <laughs> it, it comes dangerously close to flogging Molly, though. So, uh, yeah, that's true. That that that, that does they do already exist. Yeah, the, uh, Anna, you you pulled that uh, that other one though. You know about women. Yeah, one of the nuances that makes me like this book uh, so much is that the. I'm going to put big air quotes around this. Moral of it is not that women should be in charge and run everything that, you know, a lot of things along these, along this vein can end up with that. Like, well, if women were in charge, the world would be a better, kinder place or what have you. And the kind of driving home the thing of like, it doesn't, you know, your, your sex and gender does not influence how good a person you are. There's a few kind of quotes that I pulled for that. You only thought the world would be better if it was run by women if you didn't actually know many women, or old women at least. Yeah. And then and then Jack Rum at some point says, I expected better of them, really. I thought they'd be better at it than men. Trouble was, they were better than men at being like men. Both of which are excellent quotes. What I, th- what I think it is is that, like, really when you look at it, it's saying... Like, you are not precluded from being an asshole exactly. because you're a woman or trans or anything because you ha- because even if you're still in that, you're still participating in that power structure. A general is going to do general things. It doesn't matter if they're women or trans or anything. They're going to still fight a war. Well, and that's one reason why I kept... Uh, in my first read through of it, I kept expecting that we'd get a reveal about Strappy as well because I felt I felt like Strappy was going to be the like gossipy old woman type of type of archetype. Mm. 
I think it's one of the areas where Terry couldn't resist leading into a, leaning into a character trope there of the horrible little yeah. man, mm-hmm. and it would have it would have been cle- it could have been seen as clever, but at the same time, I actually think um, I mean Strappy is actually a very is a, is a such a hateful yeah. creation, but yeah. actually is a really well drawn hateful mm-hmm. creation, uh, I, and I kind of think it might make have made the audience more understanding more sympathetic mm-hmm. had that turned out yeah. to be true and it it made it makes him a more effective odious bad guy um and pe- not a real villain like a petty horrible like little bully mm-hmm. by and it, i think it would have made a, a like a good it would have to, to your point i think it would have made an excellent like point about that i think that we've already seen but, that film yeah in fifth yeah. elephant yeah yeah yeah, it, yeah. It, it's just mostly a thing of just like, okay, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, but the trope of the homophobic homosexual. Right, know, yeah. Which I think, like, you can do once, but if you make it a recurring bit, that can, I think I can, like, I think that can lessen the impact. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I think that Strappy as just a a horrible man just is fine as it is. Yeah. Villains don't always need to be redeemable. They can sometimes just be antagonists. Yeah, they can. People can suck. And the, I mean, the point is, did they still? If if he was she, she still wouldn't be redeemable. She's yeah, still and that's, horrible. that's actually exactly but, what I felt feel would be interesting would be mm. to have a horrible, irredeemable woman antagonist. But but it's good as it is. I think it would, but I also think it would have narratively, from a reader's point of view, have gone. Oh, I thought I was meant to be liking the women in this story mm-hmm. and now i'm and that confusion could have been interesting but it also kind of muddies the narrative yeah. sort of from a, and i think this keeps it simpler and cleaner yeah. and that's why I, I think it's uh, just from from that point of view um and also like the idea once you know that um strappy is basically bullying a load of young women um it just makes him worse yeah. mm-hmm. it, even though he doesn't know but it, don't, it just it, it like it just feels it just seems to lean in more to that and I, I i think i think that's the decision it must have occurred to him it must have occurred mm-hmm. to him it must have gone like i could make can i make every single character named character in this book a book um a woman a, a woman or somebody who's cross dressing mm-hmm. i every i am um, it must have occurred to him but I think he realized that you had to draw the line somewhere. And also, I guess it looked in- unrealistic to have, to not, to, to not have some men um, in the. Yeah. Um, like, he wrote, like, there, there must be some cisgendered men who have made it, who, who have made it into positions of power in this army. Yes, the so, Claremont problem. I must have some men eventually, I guess. <laughs> I, I, and it's, I think it's also because it's like we already have. At the end of the book, we already have like the feeling of the muddy narrative with despite everything that they've gone through, it's still going back to war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think and I, I think like if you're adding that in with maybe like having that there with with uh, uh, with tossing a curveball with Strappy, I think that's maybe muddying it a little too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like having a like You've got too much going on to to like drag to drag a reader in too many directions. This is a book that I would have loved the sequel to, honestly. There is so much going on in it. I think you could have. I think those characters. I would have loved to have seen what what Polly Perks did next. I think it would have been really interesting. Yeah, or or Polly Polly gets seconded to the to the city watch or something for for a year of training. 
looking at because it seems like you know, at the end of the book it seems like Polly is you know going back to the military to hopefully try to change things and I would love to see I would love to see that story but I think it would I think he would have had he would have had to have had something to say for yeah. that story and I think that that's I uh, like I I think Terry never went back to the well unless he had something to yeah. say like like the, the you you see that with Win, with Rincewind like like the Rincewind goes away like he was brought back by popular demand for sorcery and Terry regretted it because he didn't really feel like he'd done anything new with the character in that story which is true it just takes exactly the same um character arc from the light fantastic and repeats Mm -hmm. it uh it wouldn't like he was meant to be left in the dungeon dimensions and then he had then he did eric which is going to be an illustrated book which meant they needed he needed a character needed interesting vistas to draw Mm -hmm. which meant he needed a character who could travel all over and see interesting things and that meant rincewind so he brought rincewind back and then he just quietly forgot about him until he had a use for him <laughs> until interesting times where you actually where you actually have you can where which is a, an interesting times is a book that has something to say you put rincewind in that situation actually i think interesting times had there are there are crossover elements with, with this book in terms of young people fighting for what they believe idealistic um like pointless slaughter i don't think terry was quite good enough to say it in as, as sharp a way as he does in this book mm-hmm. um but yeah i don't so i don't think the borograve I, I think this works beautifully as a standalone and i don't think the borogravian army would have come back until he had a really good idea of what they would of what what he wanted to say yeah. by it mm-hmm. because he was walking a very difficult line with this book I, as i said there are times when it's almost not a Discworld novel mm-hmm. and yeah. where the discworldiness of it rubs up against the the seriousness of it like that you know where the uh, but it had like a, there's a visceral description of a of a, you know a sword slicing into somebody tonally it it's it almost doesn't almost wobbles off Discworld a few times and I think I think it'd be a very difficult challenge to go back to that it's such a dark book like I you think of it there's as extremely few palette. non-humans too I mean there's like one other troll at one point well there's a couple of trolls that are like mentioned right. that don't get named and like jade flirts with, jade one, with one yeah by throwing a rock at him yeah and everybody's like oh. <gasps> <laughs> or no it does it multiple times right there's one in the trial and then one where they're delivering the truce right i think partly that's um the uh that's a reflection we spend so much time in ang mm-hmm. which is you know is london is new york is like is the big city where everybody goes and then we're, by, where everybody ends up and now we're back out into you know the we're we're way beyond real we're off the map or in the bit of the map right. that no one really understands and that isn't cosmopolitan it's interesting yeah. to me seeing how the clacks sort of are this background plot for three or four books now mm-hmm. you know and we're, we're going to see a lot more of them in the next book that we read but you know the whole slow modernization of Discworld, you know, and I think we clocked it at the truth, sort of, where there was this palpable switch from, like, you know, still clinging onto the vestiges of the the sword and sandal stuff all the way over to okay, we're we're moving forward now. The the We've become unstuck. There's that great scene in the truth where Vetinari goes to the, the, the office of the Times mm-hmm. and says... Was this is this been been built on a burial ground? <laughs> is there, uh, is there um, you know, is this likely to tear a hole in the fabric of reality? Are you cursed? Is this like, you, 
like all of that sort of stuff and the answer is no and it's like it's terry turning to the audience and going i'm not doing that anymore mm-hmm. like that's that's mm-hmm. not what this yeah. is like the power the, the 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 printing press is not a magical it's not magical because it's um built on an ancient burial site or a um or a way of channeling the dungeon dimensions. It's magical because of it's what it is. It's magical because of because it is print, because it creates easy, cheap print. And the clax is the same yeah. thing. It's um, it's t- it's technology creating communication. And they, yeah, this this is a thing. We're, have you have you done going postal yet? That's next, next. That's one. the next book. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really good. It's a gr- great starting point. Going postal. Mm-hmm. I want to loop back to something actually about the lack of non-humans in this book. Mm. Because early on in this book, it is one of the abominations are people below a certain height, which includes dwarves. And at the end of the book, when um, the truce is accepted and relief aid is given to Borgravia, it's revealed that all of these dwarf tunnels just open up. Yeah. And that they, you know, they've always been there, just fallen out of use. There's also a point in this book where the sort of cycle of the the social contract of Igors is presented mm-hmm. of how Igors are, you know, they're going to provide care to, to communities, but they, ex- but you know, they expect, you know, we're going to give stuff, but we also need to harvest stuff to be able to help communities and that communities that reject them, especially communities that reject them violently, just stop getting Igors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a way that it it's, feels like how certain racial minorities in round world, I mean, the one that most immediately comes to mind are Jewish people, will get expelled from regions, or were, were expelled from regions during the Middle Ages. And I mean, it, it's, it's interesting of how those regressive policies and hateful and racist policies end up crippling a nation yeah jews were jews were forced into specific professions and then demonized for those for being in those professions and then and then when they were expelled from nations right all of those you know all of that gained expertise was lost and would cause issues Mm -hmm. and actually you're right you're entirely right. That's that's what that I think dwarves are, are the are the um uh are, are the sign are the kind of what's the word the um, analog yeah analog analog will do that's a good word for yeah for, I think for that for that experience in this because there's a line um when Vimes is talking to um chin um chinny clarence chinny <laughs> i think it, isn't it clarence something like that um towards it to, at the beginning of the book uh and he says like they, you know nuggan has banned uh, people short people are an abomination uh so the dwarves have sealed all have all sealed up their tunnels and left and um sealed up, sealed up their minds and left and vimes kind of says yeah i bet they have they'd had they know which way the wind was blowing or something yeah. like that like it's like he recognizes that they would they would have that dwarves would have known that this is a di- they're now in a dangerous position and they would have moved have moved out. But the way Pratchett uses dwarves to as various at various times to to represent um represent othered people is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's on the on the fringes of this book, but it's still mm-hmm. here. I think it's a testament to his style and adaptability as writer is that they're never is that they're never consistently one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, they're never it's like it's like they're never standing specifically for one group but you know depending on the story you can 
make that flexible. Like, you know, they're, they are a minority, but they are not a one-to-one stand-in for a specific group mm. and round world. Yeah. No. Like, it's religious fundamentalism. It doesn't, but it doesn't mean a particular flavor of religious fundamentalism. He actually does talk about it. I think when, when Nuggan abominates dwarves, it actually, I think he mentions their, like, obsession with gold, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Um, so that, I feel like that, that must have been a knowing nod to, to, though, particularly the way certain European countries expel Jewish people. That feels, that feels too on the nose, not too. Yeah. Yeah. As it were. One more Igor thing, though. Uh, how many fingers am I holding up? You know, that's something that Igor <laughs> should never say. It's, I think, one of my favorite <laughs> Igor lines. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good quote. There's, there's so many good kind of, like, uh, button-type lines and so many good lines in general. Um, Borgravia was a peace-loving country in the midst of treacherous, devious, warlike enemies. They had to be treacherous, devious, and warlike. Otherwise, we wouldn't be t- fighting them, eh? Uh, just, which yeah. is great. There's the there's the, the vibes line early in the book. The interests of Ankhmore Park are the interests of all money... Li- uh, I'm sorry. Freedom-loving people everywhere. <laughs> the fact that, like... like the Vibes is just here. Like, Vibes is here, and he's clocking in, like, half shifts of, like... Dip- <laughs> like, whenever he has to wear the diplomat hat, he is completely checked out. When, he is, <laughs> when he's on his peacekeeper and oh i have a chance to actually resolve this and fix this he he is he is proper vibes everything else he is here with like a cigarette and like half a cup of coffee just like call me when i actually have work to do yeah this is actually a great vibes book the whole Ankh-Mor Park had overtaken cunning a thousand years ago, had sped past devious, left artful far behind and had now by a roundabout route arrived at straightforward (laughs) i think i think it's the i think it's just like the because we only get like four or five Vime scenes in the book, he's just like mm. cranked up to like eleven on yeah. the Vimes meter. Yeah. So that's what you know. But it's also what's also interesting about that is we're it's a bit like the like the truth is we're seeing Vimes mm-hmm. from the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which is why I think he seems more extreme because we're seeing Vimes how people other people see Vimes, right. not how we see him. Knowing you know we from the word go, we from from the very first, from the very beginning of of guards guards vimes is a pov character Mm -hmm. um and we we see his evolution we see how he's changed and we see and we know his thought processes so whenever you see vimes without knowing his thought processes he seems much harsher much more brisk much Mm -hmm. more much more um kind of perhaps not suffering fools a little bit too much uh which yeah i find which is is great because it's 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 really interesting to see that character from the outside it's nice to see william de word again in, in yeah. this as yeah. well yeah that was that was a very pleasant uh, callback like a character i was maybe not expecting to see ever again <laughs> and spoiler alert for the rest of the series i'm not gonna like i wouldn't ruin anything else in the rest of the series for you but this william well i don't think william de word pops up again Huh. Um, the the, the Ankh Times mm-hmm. pops up, but yeah. I don't. Uh, um, but it exists. But um, but this is really interesting because it's um because this is like this is a reference to the Crimea, um, which is the first the you know it was the first media war. The the Crimean War was the first war where newspaper journalists were there sending their like sending fo- sent being able to send pictures from the front lines back, reports from the front lines back. It was the first time that, that that a newspaper was reporting on what something looked like at the front. And there's a lot of the Crimea in the bar in in 
Bar- in the Borogravian conflict, even though that was a sort of British imperial. Again, it's about how te- it's back to how technology is impacting the world. Is that um, every- is that the quote unquote civilization back that civilized people back in in Sudopolis and Angmorpork and um, and and you know the, the civilized Circle C world is seeing how these wars are playing out because of the clacks, um, because there's now a newspaper, there is a media. They're seeing the media's. Yeah version of what's happening in the war mm-hmm. and what's really interesting is you're seeing the media version of what you also get to see how the media is how the um foreign media is reporting the war mm-hmm. compared to how the internal propaganda is reporting the war which is which is again i just think that's very uh, happen is very it's very similar to what is happening today <laughs> but if you look at how uh if you look at how russia is reporting the ukraine conflict within russia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Compared to how the international media is reporting the Ukraine conflict, uh, it's although it's it's although the front lines are not in Russia itself, but it's the same story. It's um, it's we, you know, we are we are pre- presenting this entire version of, and that's not to say that the media angle, the the media representation of something is always the accurate one. But I think in this case, it, it's implied that they are that the the Times is reporting kind of the political situation in a realistic way whereas the uh, the Borogravians are we are winning the war it'll all be over by Hogswatch mm-hmm. there's um, glorious battles and await steak and bacon for every day so there are two funny things in the text that I wanted to that I, that I, that I saw that I wanted to like just point out as like favorite passages one is William DeWard's business card which has email on it oh, yes right which I, I, I absolutely loved and second the uh, the because I'm sorry. This is just every time this comes up, I have to think of Anna, uh, where Irina talks about how to properly knock someone out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, blows to the head are potentially harmful and should not be undertaken lightly. Turn around, sir, remove your helmet. Would 20 minutes unconsciousness be okay? I love, well, I I love like, it. <laughs> And and similar to your your interests, Justin and Anna, we have the war crimes air horn going off. Um, oh, gosh, because yeah, we... troll um, uh, Jade explaining uh, the the basic principles of war crimes uh, <laughs> is is really fun. Uh, and we also gosh. we also have Polly um, remarking on the importance of pockets. <laughs> Be like, oh, these are these are good. I... We should keep these. Yeah. Which wasn't a trope in two thousand and three. That's a trope right. now. Yeah, that's a common joke. The oh, this dress has pockets thing. Like that's a common. That's that's a meme now. That wasn't right. in two thousand and three. Right. That actually was quite a. That actually was quite a. Um, I mean, that's something, like that's novel... something that like I was certainly complaining about my clothes not ever having pockets back back in that year. But it wasn't part of cultural consciousness the way that it is now. I'd um I'd like to talk about queerness a little yes. bit. Yes, yeah. yes. Because I think that's really because I we touched on this earlier, but queerness is like, queerness is kind of a punchline in Discworld for a while. Mm-hmm, it's yeah. like it's not rare ever. You know, it's you know it's that kind of thing. As we a little bit suspect, you know, it's that it's not that I, I would say there is an active homophobia in any of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their hearts are in the heart. Their hearts is in the right place usually, but it's just that it's it's kind of minimized. It's not accepted. And I think Terry, um, you see a right. You know, I think. It, Partly, it, it literally, as he grew as a person, as the world became more, 
you know, the, um, the, because of, frankly, the success of, of our very well executed liberal agenda. <laughs> <laughs> as, um, but, you know, it like, as the world became more progressive and, and, and more inclusive, uh, I, and I just naturally think that's reflected in the books. And I think mm. Terry becomes more aware, you know, and, yeah. and this, we actually, for the first time, we get genuine queer characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and, and, uh, Tonker and Lofty's story is, it's a, it's a proper, it's never, it's never really, like with many things with Pratchett, it's handled very delicately. Mm-hmm. It's never, um, like their sexuality is never really the focus of their story. It's like they, they're just two women in love that, that I am, and their backstory is horrible and tragic, but it's never made a huge deal out of the fact that they are women who love women and that, that they are two women in love with each other. And I find that really, really interesting and a really, it's a really subtle way of handling it. Um, it's just there. And it's on the one hand, you could say that it's a shame that Terry never came out and addressed homophobia directly in a way that he kind of addressed racism directly um uh, i mean he probably just ran out of time but i actually think i actually almost think i prefer this kind of subtle acknowledgement that these relationships exist and this is one of them um and you know uh, there is more of that to come it's never very overt but it, it it does um i actually think uh I, I almost think when you get to unseen academicals it's almost like somebody's gone you really need to put more good characters in your books <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay let me let me let me all right, all right I'll, I'll see what i can do um but although i'd like the irony is that the queerest of all the project well the other queer queer most queer of all the project books is the one based around football which is great <laughs> um uh but yeah um the, i really love that relationship i really love how how subtly it's done how interesting it is um that it's not it it doesn't become a kind of focus of this of the story or the themes but in the, but it inherently is simply because it's there yeah. like it's in the same way that it's a political act to to be openly queer um to include openly queer characters is by its nature a progressive move mm-hmm. and um and I really love that I know I know this is one of Rihanna Pratchett's favorite fa- uh, favorite Discworld books for that reason from just from just from my perspective of somebody who does like reviews and you know typically with a focus towards queer content um i don't always need like even even if you're even if you've got a writer who's interested in discussing issues like terry i don't like you know i don't always need every story about about queer people to be about homophobia because that because you know existing as an act of revolution i think like even possibly even more so is the just quiet realization that jack rome is a gay trans man um because he has his relationship with his love who i cannot remember the name of but you know like will go to brothels to keep up the appearance of things Mm -hmm. but will just be like i'm gonna go read a book take a nap you know you've got a hard job yeah, Jack Rome, like, you know, he he goes to a sex worker and will, you know, keep to keep up the appearance, but, you know, just is there to relax and have a nice drink and read a book. I, I think, you know, it's it feels very of that time of, of like a certain time in the 70s and 80s where to keep up appearances. There's that, that idea of keeping up appearances. I've been like I've been watching For All Mankind recently um, and there is a there's a um, 
a subplot in the first season about um, a gay and lesbian character and what they do to it continues on to season two from what I've seen so far of what they do to keep the, those identities secret from a government that would discriminate against them mm-hmm. despite trying to still live their lives. It's interesting how I've used the word interesting like a million times. <laughs> if you do a drinking game of this episode, I've like, it's really interesting how it seems to be my, my new catchphrase. So brilliant. But if we, it, com- it if really- we combined you and Anna, I, we did a drinking game on it. We would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I, I alone could kill, could kill you all. It's interesting. <laughs> No, I don't doubt it. Um, it's um, uh, what was I? What was, ah, what was my interesting point though? Um, oh, yeah, for all mankind. Um, so I, I actually think there is something of alternate uh, of kind of alternate history in Discworld. It's a, it's a similar idea in that often it takes this idea, the, the this kind of what if idea mm-hmm. of kind of um, in the, and, and and then just applies it to this other world um which is what Discworld is for that's what pratchett used it for it's just um, to take take round world ideas and twi- and say what if this happened and then see how it plays mm-hmm. out and i think that's that, that that kind of applies to a lot of this this that doesn't feel relevant to your point but uh, it was <laughs> but it's but you but you, I, I do agree with you that yeah. the um the traumatic uh the the you don't always have to have queer characters um having trauma <laughs> in order to just serve a plot function yeah. um and yeah. i think this kind of this kind of walks a line for them for that a little bit like uh, the, on the one on the one hand they are queer they are there that and they are being persecuted against but it feels like it's not the the it, it doesn't feel like the the headline i think part of it is that their story is theirs and we don't have polly doing like a lot of soul searching about how she views those characters mm. or their relationship that it seems like like at first she seems to think that they're two men who are in love and is happy to live and let live and then thinks that one is a man and one is a woman and is happy to live and let live and then is realizes that they're both women and is happy to live and let live that we don't we never have the thing of like her, you know, as a POV character grappling with her internal homophobia or anything like that, that, you know, from the POV character's standpoint, it's, it's, it's fine, you know, that it's very accepting from that standpoint, at least, even if the rest of the world isn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's very common in, in Pratchett, actually, that the POV character is, uh, does have that kind of live and let live attitude. You're right. Polly doesn't doesn't ever judge them for that. Like she she judges. Is it Lofty that's the, the that's the pyromaniac? Yeah. Like yeah. oh Tom Cry. Lofty, Lofty's the place. pyromaniac. She she judges her for that a little bit, <laughs> but she doesn't. Ju- you know, but she doesn't. But she never. But they're never judged for their sexuality. She's take she takes it as that as just a fact of their a fact of their story. Um, and I feel like often the POV character is the conscience of the, is the conscience of the story mm-hmm. with yeah. this world, and I think that's that's very much you know that seems to have been Terry's angle with with regards to those characters, and the, that's the the story's angle on that is that their persecution is is something to be is something to be noted, but their but the nature of their love is not, it's not, it's not noteworthy. And that's, yeah, I th- I find actually, it's really, I really love that it took him so long to bring in 
genuine to bring in a genuine gay couple and um when he does to handle it so well mm-hmm. um because you know there's there's very few sexual relationships in discworld at yeah. all yeah like not everybody gets to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or a partner like most characters and when they do it's not always like elegantly handled it's one of especially in the kind of middle section i think it's one of the you know it's one of, I, I, sam and sybil i i, I always buy mm-hmm. but other characters i kind of carrot like, and angua yeah i, I never yeah carrot angua yeah there's a, there's a there's a stretch of like i'd say like in the first 15 books there's like a number like a, a crooked number like three or four or five books that have like it seems like mandatory combat relationships that are that are just like always like god this is boring <laughs> or god this sucks and they're played by the same people essentially that's how yeah, we saw it exactly like when people would ask him like oh are you gonna ever bring back victor in from moving pictures and he kind of goes well i kind of did with carrot and because <laughs> he always saw that that saw that for, for those for that first stretch he was basically casting the same actors as characters and the um and so um um tepic in in uh, in pyramids and um and victor in moving pictures and carrot are more basically you know, the the carrot is a little bit more interesting, and I think he kind of stops it with carrot and goes, "Actually, this this guy now just plays carrot, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's who he is." Carrot is like the or protagonist who who refuses protagonist role. Yeah, yeah. which is yeah, one of the core themes of the whole thing, actually. But yeah, there's like like they're, those those characters aren't very interesting, and thus those those relationships aren't very interesting mm-hmm. because you know I don't really care what happens between. Tepic and Tracy, or what happens between um, Kanina and Nigel, or what happens between... I don't even know who yeah. Kanina and Nigel are. It's, it's like, it's that's, been two uh, years since I've read these books. And in I'm like, sorcery. I, sorcery. Uh, sorcery. Oh, oh yeah, that's, you that's, could not, I, the, I could not remember anything about the, sorcery. The barbarian <laughs> hero who wants to be a hairdresser. Oh, gosh, right. Oh. And the, uh, and the accountant who wants to be a barbarian right. hero. Who's basically a Dungeons and Dragons cipher? Yeah. Um, well, I don't like, remember yeah, that they, at all. They, <laughs> then, I like now that you see this, I remember these yeah. characters, but I'm just like, and gun to my head, I could not name any of these random. Then they're not interesting yeah. characters, and that's why you, they, that's why they've not stuck in your mind, and why they don't come back. Um, but like I said, right at the beginning of the podcast, is Terry is much is a much better writer mm-hmm. by this point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was never very good at writing sexy people. No. I think that's that's part of it. Young young people, like pe- like young men and women in their twenties who aren't like dysfunctional, who aren't dysfunctional outsider weirdos, were never in his wheelhouse. <laughs> it took him a long time to be able to write people like that. I think I think the realization that people like that don't exist is eventually yeah. was what helps him write that write people like yeah. that. And also, you know, having grown, I think having a grown up daughter helps him write young women mm-hmm. because he was good at writing children when he had a and i think it's because he had a child and then eventually uh i think he had i don't think there were very many like vivacious young women in his in his life <laughs> so i try to think of like who is the sexiest person in this world like it's like, carrot who's, who i mean yeah it is carrot. I, no, it is carrot. i mean i would say no because he's boring <laughs> um, it's angua I mean, it, it might be angua. It's angua a lot of a lot of women and um Terry used to talk about this. There are a lot of women of what he would call a certain age who have very strong feelings about Vimes. As well, they should. I, I think. Like, I think Vimes. Yeah, too. Like, I, I, Vimes is the housewife's choice. 
yeah, I mean, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. It's and like, oh I mean, yeah, definitely like as somebody who like who grew up with a certain fascination for detectives, then <laughs> got older, realized that there was a certain thing I had printed upon, and oh, <laughs> it's like. If I imagine, if I imagine vibes is like a Columbo type, yeah, absolutely. Nope, that's I'm, and, then, I'm and then add into that the like wife guy uh, energy that Vimes has, yeah. where he's mm-hmm. like so devoted to Sybil. That is hot. Yeah, that is hot. yeah. And uh, and I think the, I think of course we haven't read Going Postal yet, but I think another contender has got to be Moist. Uh, I think another contender is got, has got to be Adora yeah. Bell. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but although although Vetinari has a lot of fans as well, I think I think although it's I, only I, specifically with vibe. It's vibes of Vetinari. Yeah. That's I, I always think is Vetinari is quite a sexless character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, he's kind of an asexual character. Yeah. Right? which is why when they when they made the the TV show, which I which I you know we don't have time to go into the problems of that TV <laughs> no, show. We don't. Um, but one of the one of the one of the decisions that bothered me least about it was gender swapping Vetinari. Mm-hmm. I don't think actually I think they eventually the the version they did of Vetinari wasn't a particularly great version of the character but gender swapping the character never bothered me in the slightest mm-hmm. because Vetinari's gen- gender has no role in who Vetinari is because I don't find that I, I, I find Vetinari to be like not an especially male character and not an especially heterosexual character or sexual character I don't I like I kind of feel like he's kind of a blank st- an enigma and a blank a blank slate I think I think it's like the projection of class is more important to Veninari than it is gender. Oh yeah. god, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You could you could cast Veninari as like an amorphous blob, so long as it projected power, as long as it was yeah. thin as absolutely, a rail yeah. and could cut you with a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. Okay, we and on that bombshell, yeah, we should uh, <laughs> do we do. We, I mean, I feel like since since I invited you, we actually have. Uh, a lot of other people have spilled a lot more ink in a much more interesting way than I could about uh, yelling about turfs and Discworld. Um, but if we want to get a little bit of yelling in, we can here. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you're aware. I wrote, I wrote an article for the New Statesman, which is a British magazine, about this. Okay. Um, uh, whereas the because there was, uh, I mean, there was a mountain made out of a very tiny molehill. Um, which partly Rihanna Pratchett was to blame for because she amplified the conversation in turn. But she, somebody somebody tried to claim Terry for the turfs, essentially, uh, and um, and Rihanna was incensed by this. Um, but by being incensed by this, um, it amplified that conversation, and then Neil Gaiman got involved and that amplified the conversation, and it ended up being this huge thing, and it ended up being so for a while. Was Terry Pratchett a turf dominated? British liberal Twitter for a bit for about a day and I wrote I was asked to write an article for the New Statesman about it um, and I argued very strongly actually what I argued was that this is an extremely nuanced this, this is an extremely complicated subject that needs to be approached with nuance and compassion um, but uh but Twitter the general, <laughs> yeah. But the 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 but the general principle of Terry's work, and especially when you apply it to gender roles, and I cited Monstrous Regiment and Jackram, and I cited Cheery as people who lived their, you know, lived their authentic gender selves. Um, and you know that that I, that line from Maledict earlier on, uh, that I mentioned earlier on that you that he, that he wouldn't judge anybody for not playing that for playing the hand they were dealt, right? 
um, that basically tells you everything you need to know about Pratchett's worldview. Uh, and also if his friends and daughter say that he would have been extremely pro trans rights, uh, then who are we to argue? Mm-hmm. But, uh, so that, that, and I think, so I, but I think this is the book that really underlines that point. Um, unfortunately, you bring your own baggage to these things. And I think if you were somebody who is gender critical, um, who is, you know, of the JK Rowling bent, uh, and you bring that baggage to this, to this book, to any Pratchett book, um, you see what you want yeah. to see and you actually can make a compelling case. And I've seen people make a case for the opposite based on what's in the books. I don't think it's true. I don't, I think they're missing the point. I think they're slightly twisting and misinterpreting things. But as I said, you bring your own baggage to something you write, uh, something you read. Uh, what I wasn't, ex- what I should have expected and didn't expect is the amount of people who brought their own baggage to my article <laughs> and managed <laughs> to, internet? M- and managed to miss, and managed to miss the point. And I spent uh, the next five days being essentially chased off the internet by both sides of the debate, which was fun. <laughs> um, one side for Feeling that I hadn't condemned uh, gender critical people hard enough, uh, harshly enough because, as I said, nuance and compassion, and the other side um, being la- yelling, l- yelling loudly about um, about uh, gender, uh, about sex matters, etc., etc. I stand with J.K. Rowling, etc., etc. And uh, what followed was a pretty unpleasant week. I'm very and sorry. I ended up donating the. F- Donating the fee to that article for that article to um to a trans charity because uh, a charity that helps um that helps young trans people because I just was it was a horrible experience and I didn't re- feel comfortable profiting from it but that's where I stand on it anyway and fucked her <laughs> yes like I seriously fucked her like seriously just just they are the like it's such a horrible political position I don't and 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 and, and it makes my blood boil but I think it would have I think it would Terry as well Terry had trans yeah. friends Terry was friends with drag queens like, this, this, he, all the they, stories also from people um, who had books signed by him um, who were closeted at the time and he signed the book with the you know with the um, correct name or you know with something that could you know be ambiguously read as the correct name at least etc he created two beautifully realized characters in Jack Rowan and Cherry who um were told to live as one gender and said no I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I, I I that's not that's not me. I will live as this other gender. There's a brilliant thing I'm not sure if we've got if you've got to it at this stage yet where uh, about the trend that cap back the trend that starts to happen with Ankh- with, Ankh- with Ankh-Morpork dwarves of Ankh-Morpork mm-hmm. dwarves um, embracing femininity, uh, mm-hmm. and there's there's also a, there's also like a, there's a hint in that that uh, not even a hint it's explicitly said that not all of them are you know it say I think it quite clumsily says not all of them are are actually men or actually right. women, um, but the idea is that 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 people are regardless of their uh, of their assigned sex their assigned sex are are living as the gender uh living in the in the gender presentation that they that they believe that they are and that's really explicitly pointed out and i don't think you can read that and in any way argue that pratchett wasn't on the side of that yeah. argument right. yeah and that's that's one of my favorite things with the dwarfs and and gender is that they have this gender revolution and it's never explicitly tied to what's in their pants Mm-hmm. yeah exactly that it's uh it's it's fairly it's fairly ob- i think it is explicitly pointed out that that cheery is um is you know is is female because mm-hmm. angua um, can but, smell it mm-hmm. yeah 
exactly but it's um but it's later pointed out that not every dwarf who is dressing who is presenting as female is female um and it's that's really you know that's a fantastic incredibly like bearing in mind that this is the very like 2010 i i think was was the last time that was tackled in a discworld book and that's that conversation was was extremely ahead of its time Mm -hmm. any final closing thoughts on the book before we get to our ratings Yes, Vimes the Butcher is hilarious. I do have one thing that I felt didn't age super well for me with this book, which is that with Jackram, who I love as a character, we've got another case of a fat character where a lot of the kind of on-screen description is about that character being fat. We're way better than we were back with Agnes. Um, but it's still it's still great. It's still uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, and it's, there's that whole thing about like like the word uh, why use the word fat when the word gross is wobbling yeah. towards you, like that kind but of th- thing. But there's some other good things like like there's the uh, the bit about how people underestimate fat men. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's like you can you. Know, I feel like I feel like you know, you can describe. The character, and then bring in relevant characteristics of their physical appearance where it's relevant, but don't keep hammering it. <laughs> I almost wonder if that's maybe done on purpose with Jackram. Um, specifically, like it's the thing that every it's the thing that Polly notices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is just this is just me talking out loud, thinking out loud. Yeah, but it's the thing that Polly notices. Until so, and it, it, it detracts away from possibly thinking about you know could Jackram be a woman or something. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's like just thinking out loud there, but I think that's it's an interesting thing of like a narrative bias. Yeah, it's it's almost chaff. But um, like Jackram goes from I think Polly first describes him as the fat sergeant. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's she she dismisses him as a as the fat sergeant to you know she's she's basically hero worshiping him by the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I and I think Jackram himself. Uh, what separates Jackram, I think, from other characters, kind of fat Discworld characters, if you like, uh, is Jackram talks about it. Yeah. Um, and is a, and is aware. I mean, so is Agnes, but Agnes tortures herself over it, whereas Jackram kind of inhabits his body and talks about it and is aware of it and Pratchett kind of uses that and I think you were right about him saying people that thing about people underestimating fat men it's interesting because Jackram's like um not the element of Jackram being a woman uh well as being a trans man um but Jackram was based on a friend of Terry's Hmm. Jackram is um Bernard Pearson essentially who is um the cunning artificer Artificer. Okay. I've never quite got that word. Got got on with that word. <laughs> um, uh, he's the he runs the um had, he set up the the uh, Discord Emporium oh. um, and and worked on a lot of Discord spinoff stuff. Um, and he is this great booming large man. Huh. Uh, used to be a policeman, and um, they uh and like although the cat is not exactly anal- analogous it's, it's not qu- exactly the same but a lot of his characteristics were taken from bernard pearson um so i, I kind of feel like uh so i wonder how much of his friend is in him in that mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and how much of what his friend has said about what bernard pearson has said about about his own 
size and shape mm-hmm. uh, is in is, is in that experience because Terry specifically said that he that he based a lot of the character on him. So that's I find that really interesting. Yeah. Let's do some ratings. Uh, I'm giving this book twenty out of ten pairs of socks. Uh, Anna? I'm giving it every color in a box of pig- pigmented chalk. I'm giving it twelve out of eleven Igor fingers. And Mark, you get the last word. I was going to do that same joke. Oh! <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give this uh, nine severed limbs out of a potential ten. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm giving it ten severed limbs out of a potential ten. Actually, this is ten out of ten. This is a ten out of ten. This world, this world for me. This is, I think, top yeah. draw. Excellent. And I'm annoyed that I didn't have a fu- that I didn't have a funnier answer off the cuff. <laughs> So aside from your book coming out in the fall, anything that you uh, want the internet to know about uh, you to promote? Uh, so I actually have an album coming out, um, which I haven't really talked about very much, because um, but uh, I'm playing the Asylum Steampunk Convention in Lincoln in the UK, which is the UK's biggest steampunk convention, um, in the end of uh, the end of August uh, under the name of my so. Laugh, what I laughably called my solo project because <laughs> I'm in a band called The Men That Will Not Be Blamed for Nothing. Uh, but I went, we're kind of inactive for a bit, uh, so I'm doing a solo album and uh, uh, under the name Before Victoria, and uh, which is the name of my non existent band. Uh, so I will have an album out at some point, which I'm really excited about. Excellent, uh, I actually think it's turning out pretty well. Uh, and yeah, my my new book about David, but about the relationship between David Bowie and Mark Bolin and how that what that tells us about post war culture uh that's out in october and i'm i think it, i think it's really good i think I've, i think i've done a good job excellent justin would you like to read the summary for going postal so this is book 33 which means we are in our last nine yep Oof. that's before that's unless you decide to do the science of discord novels or any of the i think, um, we've, I think we sort of uh, just said no to like outside the the, the 41 oh and this even has this even has a uh a got a quote from the san francisco chronicle so right by right by here uh suddenly condemned arch swindler moist von lipwig found himself with a noose around his neck and dropping through a trap door into a government job by all rights moist should be meeting his maker rather than being offered a position as postmaster by lord veninari supreme ruler of ankh pork getting the moribund postal service up and running again however may prove an impossible task what with literally mountains of decades old undelivered mail clogging every nook and cranny of the broken down post office Worse still, Moise could swear the mail was talking to him. Worst of all, it means taking on the gargantuan, greedy, grand trunk clax communication monopoly and its bloodthirsty, piratical headmen. But if the bold and indubitable are what's called for, Moise the man for the job. To move the mail, continue breathing, get the girl, and specially deliver that invaluable commodity that every being, human or otherwise, requires. Hope. I oh gosh, this is good. This, this book is going to be a blorbo, isn't it? This this book is going to slay you. It's uh, I think it's a it's a it's a classic that one. It's it's really frothy. After it's it's a it's a hell of a palate cleanser. After how heavy Monstrous Regiment is, yeah. it's a real treat. It's it's it zips along. It has darkness in it mm-hmm, as well, yeah. but it zi- it zips along at a rate. It's got a really um, light tone. Um, it's got some of that anger still, but it's also but it's uh, it's a proper Discworld yeah. romp. And I think it's kind of I think it's like late period Discworld's best mm-hmm. romp. So uh, just for just for a little bit of like reference on how we do this is that like 
I don't get to I don't get to read summaries of stuff until we're done with the current book. Uh, and I try to like just sort of like like I don't like say people like don't tell me what's coming next because I think spoilers are dumb um, or, or like worrying about spoilers are dumb. Um, but like I try to like sort of like keep myself like clear on Discworld stuff of like what would be the feeling like w- reading this as it's coming out sort of. Um, but my God, the amount of stuff I've heard about Moist von Lipwick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, secondhand over the last two years is, like, overwhelming. I thought of something I forgot to plug. <laughs> and then you mentioned going postal, and it reminded me. Uh, I have a newsletter. Please subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, you can find my newsletter, but, but if you go to my Twitter account, at 20th Century Mark, it's, it's in my bio uh but it's it's called glom of knit and uh it has <laughs> I, I usually write a write a, a, a essay about stuff going on in my life that is funny usually and then some links to articles i've written recommendations of stuff and then usually a work in progress excerpt from, a, from whatever book i'm writing so please do sign up for that uh so yeah but at 20th century mark on twitter is basically the, the place to find me cool cool great Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today and all the scheduling things and getting better from, you know, everything. And yeah. Don't get COVID, gang. (laughs) Don't get it. It's rubbish. It's terrible. It's not fun. (laughs) Um. Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. It's close. <clears throat> gives you something it to work with. It gives you something to work with. Good enough. Good enough for military work, which is appropriate for this book. Good enough for rock and roll, which is a different book. <laughs> Out of curiosity, which edition did you all read? Because I have this one. And there's... Um, I think... I'm on Kindle. Okay. So that's the one that... So I have that cover, but I have no idea what actual edition. Because there is an important thing to note that there is a pronoun switch between editions at the end. So I have the UK first edition, which I bought pretty much the week it came out. Um, I know the the bit you mean. I didn't realize they'd done a pronoun switch, so I can tell you what the original... Oh, uh, no, they they essentially misgender Jackram in the original... um, it's it's uh Jackram Jackram is her in in the original edition. Mm. It'd be interesting to find out when that change came that in. That would be interesting. Do you know what? I can I can find this out. 
Um, I can. Uh, I am going to text Rob Wilkins now. <laughs> And we will, and we will get an answer. Oh my gosh! And I'll see if we can, you are like the best guest officially. And I'll see if we can get an answer live on the air. So, to, um, so like talking amongst yourselves, and I'll see if, uh, and I'll see if Rob gets back to us by the by uh, the by the end of the thing. Oh, interesting. So at least on my edition, the the Kindle edition, I just looked at it. Jack Rum is ref- like at least in like the last part of the scene uh, is referred to as her. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious maybe now. I'm, like, maybe like, I'm wrong. Uh, hang on. Can you check? Can you check your edition? Definitely, definitely doesn't misgender Jack Room at the end before I send this text message. <laughs> Just to be up. Because uh, which edition do you have, Aaron? Or you had the you have the um. I yeah. I, this one is uh, the Harper Torch U.S. edition. Okay. I have another edition, but it is 500 miles away, so that's not particularly useful right now. Oh yeah, the around around her, the kitchen worked. Is that the the one we're talking yeah. about? Because Polly later, two three pages later, uh, says him. I'm gonna have to slice this yeah. around and put this at the end of the, <laughs> the episode. So I guess I yeah I guess the text I, I maybe the text hasn't changed, um, but it's just that Terry does. That thing with shifting pronouns in the narrative. I'm pretty sure it, it sounds like it's pretty consistent. According to the according to the F- Discworld fandom wiki, which is not Lspace, uh, Jackram gets she, he, and they, them pronouns throughout the book. But also, the UK is slightly less averse to using singular they. I mean, I'll I'll I I will trust the folks on Lspace just because that's. Yeah, I would trust the L space more than the fandom wiki. Oh, the the, uh, the thing is, the L space hasn't been updated in a very long time. Yeah. So if if there's True. been a if there's been a modernization of the text, in, in fairness, I would be very surprised if there's been a modernization of the text. Yeah. Um, I uh, could be wrong because about that. I know Rob is fiercely protective. Um, mm-hmm. Jack had, had turned her chair to the fire and settled back. Around him, the kitchen worked. Oh, around him. So is that? Okay. Yeah, Jackram had turned her chair to the fire and settled back around him. The kitchen. That work. is different than the my same... edition. Yeah, that's different from mine. Yeah, that's different from mine. Um, now the UK first edition would be the. There are you. There are often changes between the first between the first hardback edition, and mm-hmm. the and later paperback editions. Usually, just corrections. Right. Um, so it might be that that sentence was identified as a correction. Yeah, because. It doesn't make sense to use both pronouns in the same sentence, and possibly it was because Terry wasn't sure which one he was using, and accidentally put in both, and it got through, and no one spotted it, and then it was corrected for later editions. That would, I would be surprised if there was a, um, if there was a, a change into to the text. It feels like that if they were changing it for kind of you know modern sensibility reasons, that would have happened very recently, and I don't think it would have. happened. Yeah, I don't think I it would have happened just, just either. Don't think, um, yeah. So it, I, th- I think it would have been a correction to, um, from the first edition to later editions. Yeah, that sounds like a printer's correction of some sort. And I think that is the only time I can't see another time that I think he's very careful mm-hmm. to not use pronouns out in that in this scene. Um, yeah, I there's think, a lot th- of Jackram Jackram. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think he writes around it a lot. Yeah, which is clever. 
Uh, and then later when they get the uh, iconograph and address book, uh, the little little black book, um, all of the soldiers refer to Jackram using he, him. All right. And I kind uh, of we, like the mismatch, I guess we should actually, actually. start the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Now that we've solved the mystery of the printer's correction. Yeah, um, would you like me to still text Rob and see if he knows? I mean, if you want to see... If you want to just confirm that it's a printer's correction uh, as opposed to a, a purposeful pronoun alignment in the political gender sense, I suspect it's the former. I think so too. It's an interesting thing to have resolved, though. It's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing to have a correction on, given how like critical it is to the tone of the book. Mm-hmm. So the later versions that you will have all say all say her. her, and then the kitchen worked around her. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have the okay. the two thousand four Harper Torch. Uh, newsflash, um, we may have to edit this out, but I just got a reply from Rob, <laughs> who has said, uh, eek. <laughs> In fact, he says eek with two exclamation marks. Um, that sounds like a correction made by the US copy editor. I haven't got the manuscript to hand, the one we would have, the one we would have sent to the publishers, but I'll check when I get back to the chapel. Could you give me the whole sentence so I could search, so I can easily search for it? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so, uh... um, so I, I will, um, I will send. I will send him the full the, the full sentence and report and report back. I'm not sure if this is something we can include. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but I just thought I like. I, I thought I'd let you know that um, I am seeking answers. This is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it would be the American publisher that changed it. There were changes made to, to the American editions. Not many, very few. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to like read read them micro. Like you'd have to compare them. Have the two editions in, in front of you, page by mm-hmm. page, to, to spot them. Most of them you wouldn't. Some. I mean, some of them I think actually were would Terry take one last chance to do a quick sharpen <laughs> <laughs> because he because he could but occasionally it's just changing it's literally just changing words yeah, taking- interesting the audio the audiobooks are quite interesting because the audiobooks are uh, there's there's changes um like uh the uh, in hogfather uh, if you listen to the audiobook of this the audiobook Stephen Briggs does both but in the US edition he says he says boogeyman and in the British edition he says bogeyman interesting which is um because those two those are the those are the the term that's the term that's commonly used. I thought it was maybe just taking out extraneous use. Probably, I mean, it would be taken out. Uh, ex- uh, although, actually, although in the in, in the case of sorcery, there is a there is a bonus you thrown yes. in. So, 